Welcome to Bible Over Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice for Verka, and we've got Gumby. Hey, hola. <laughs> and we've got Theo. Hey. And <laughs> we've got Zachariah. Yo. And we've got Keith. What's up? And oh, sorry, that's like 20 years away. And we are totally looking forward to Mr. David Burnett. Hello. <laughs> Before we begin, we are going to be starting off with Jackie O. Cool Beans, American Golden Ale brewed lactose and conditioned on coffee. This full-bodied golden ale delivers a rich and creamy mouthfeel married with a bright and fruity coffee character, making Cool Beans a light and easy drinker for hot summer days and cool winter nights alike. It's an ABV of 5%. So I picked this beer out. Because cool beans was a phrase I used to say before I think it was ever popular. Me and my brothers used to say it all the time. So I just, I have no idea what it tastes like. I've never heard of it. It was not recommended to me. (laughs) (laughs) While we poured the beer, um, David Burnett has completed doctoral coursework toward a Ph.D. in religious studies in Judaism and Christianity and antiquity at Marquette University. He has served as a graduate teaching assistant and research assistant in the Department of Theology at Marquette. David is a two-time graduate of Criswell College in Dallas, Texas, with a B.A. in Biblical Studies and an M.A. in Theological and Biblical Studies. He has also studied at Tantier Economical, or I'm sorry, Ecumenical Institute of the University of Notre Dame in Jerusalem, Israel, at Oxford University. His work has been published with Fortress Academic Lexington Press and in the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. All right. That is impressive every time I read it. I know. <laughs> Phew. Just years of doing one thing. <laughs> so on the nice. beer, man, this is a heady beer. It is. This has got a ton of foam on the top. It does have that nice, nice lager look to it. It's got an amber type, type hue. Yeah. Saved a little in the can because I like to drink it out of the can too. Yeah, it's it's got an interesting fragrance on the top. It's yeah. I, I, I'm gonna say it. It's almost wet dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's gonna smell um, smell great after I get the foam off the top, but it, it does smell a little bit like wet dog on the top. <laughs> mm. You're not selling it to me with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hold on. What do we say? It, it it is a good beer. The the beans are good. I can oh, taste the beans. Ho, ho. Now I will say this: first sip, awesome. Yeah, dude, that sings through. You can taste those beans. They're not hard. They're not heavy, mm-hmm. but man, that sings through. It's light and enjoyable. That'll be something. The second sip tastes just like wet dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I good. Actually, thought you were referring to another beer. Oh, wet dog. <laughs> so cool. He's like, oh, I got to go out and get that wet dog. Because <laughs> you know some home brewers name their beer that at some point. Oh, hands down. That's good, though. It, it has, good yeah, it has a nice, crisp type of, uh, well, it's, it's flowery, but coffee at the same time. It's almost hard to describe. It's made with locally roasted coffee but i don't know where the beans are from so nice. i don't know what that means oh it's good i'm enjoying it yeah anybody else drinking on their end all right what does everybody else oh, have on the rocks it's it doesn't taste like wet dog <laughs> but it's it's i already had a beer so i'm like trying to scale back a little bit by just drinking straight vodka i don't know if it's... <laughs> yeah it's that, it's that time of night keith i get it man <laughs> that, that that can make for an interesting podcast right, there. <laughs> right? i figured this is what i needed for for deep theology I, this will make me much more i'm gonna ask some really good questions after this <laughs> well I, i'm gonna point out <laughs> yeah. I'm going to point out that David will also be presenting in the Synoptic Gospel section at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature on the 30th. So that's pretty sweet. And, yeah. b- and before we move on, because tonight's going to be a fun episode, 
If you want to go back and listen to more of David Burnett, he's also been featured on the Naked Bible Podcast on episodes 61, 95, 164, and 205, as well as on Bible Over Brew 61 and 62. Um, you could also pick up his uh, his blog at dburnett.com. 61 uh, and 62 are the best episodes ever. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry to talk over you. I just wanted to say, if, if they're evergreen, if anybody, I would totally recommend people go back to those ones. I know that was a few months back, but awesome, awesome episodes. Oh, yeah. I really, yeah. yeah. And I'll tell I you mean, what, they, they did very well in, in analytics, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think where I first uh, heard of uh, David was in the Naked Bible podcast in the Resurrection and the Death of the Gods episode. That was that was fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. it's probably the best episode in that entire podcast. <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't speak to that, you know. <laughs> I, just, I, I have heard that it has like an insane amount of downloads to where I could not really, I couldn't fathom it. <laughs> it's kind of scary to know that that many people are listening to what I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I've poured my life into this stuff, so. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I hear you have some really interesting stuff for us tonight. Yeah, it'll be some riff off of that, actually. So <laughs> there's some there's some stuff I did not cover in that episode that you will get exclusive content of tonight. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so, I like people who've read uh, my book chapter on this, they will know what I'm going to talk about. But those who have not, yeah, will it'll be new. So. Yeah, I just spent like the last 30 minutes speed reading through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, Zach, why don't you go ahead and uh, and lead with an, a question? Because I know you were I know you were ruminating over a couple uh, I'll, of them. I'll wait for I'll wait for uh, David to, like go through, like give people a taste of it. I think. All right. My my question is a little bit technical. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Dave, can you give us can you give us an overview of your ideas on this first chapter? Um, yeah, uh, real quick, I'll highlight my beer as well. Yes, uh, yes, please, yes, please. Yeah, since since I'm up in Milwaukee, this is my favorite Milwaukee brew. It's called Louis Demise, and it's uh, an amber ale from MKE Brewery uh, in Milwaukee, and it is. By far the best beer in Milwaukee, in my opinion. Really? I just love, love, love it. Rich, thick, but not too thick. It's like on the thicker end of amber, but not like, you know, too much. So it still has that light feeling of an amber ale, but just, it's just the best. And of course, I have to put it in a brewer's koozie. <laughs> oh, I thought I saw that peeking out of the corner yes. of the camera. Yeah, so that I think it's epic. Up on the Milwaukee tonight, you know? Hey, um, I, I don't think you're allowed to call that Milwaukee's best, are you? Isn't there a Milwaukee's best already? Oh. I'm just telling you my opinion on this. <laughs> I, got a, I got a horrible Milwaukee's best story. I, I used it to marinate ribs one time, and I, I had my one-year-old daughter at the time in her high chair as I'm marinating ribs with beer. And the whole house just permeated with Milwaukee's best. <laughs> and I, I feel like I did her a disservice. <laughs> that is also, such a conundrum, though, that Milwaukee's best beer is like the worst beer in Milwaukee. <laughs> and Milwaukee's a great place for beer. Right. This is like a, such a big problem. Right. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> To clarify, we don't mean the one that mm -mm. David is drinking. No, no, no. He's, he's got a good craft. <laughs> Yeah, I'm giving I'm giving free press for MKE because everybody who lives here knows it's awesome. Okay. I mean the brewery tours are so fun because you pay like ten bucks, you get the tour, and you get unlimited drinks except for like the high percenters that give you like only two or three of those. But most of us, after a long semester or something where we're just like dead inside, <laughs> we'll go to the we'll go to the brewery tour and just stay at the bar the whole time. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. Oh, like, have fun on the tour. We're going to get all the drinks we can drink here. That sounds worth a trip, man. It does. We may be joining up there here shortly. 
Hey, man, you're always welcome. You're always welcome. We are always looking for a good brewery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 great. Between that, them and Lakefront, it's Milwaukee's got some good stuff. What are your best attractions up that way? Well, I mean, in terms of natural attractions, I think are some of my favorite because they have a uh, Milwaukee had a socialist mayor back in the fifties who poured a lot of money into the park system, and our parks are incredible. Like we've just got parks everywhere, and we're right on Lake Michigan, and so uh, the lake lake beaches are beautiful. The lake parks are gorgeous. Uh, the river Milwaukee River goes right through downtown. So you can walk along the river and there's all kinds of great restaurants and stuff. And, and the third ward, which is like a converted old industrial Milwaukee into like shops and restaurants. And it's kind of woody snoot for my taste. <laughs> uh, can't afford to go to most of those places as like yeah. a grad student, you know, so, you know, but it's, a, yeah, it's a great place. It's a great place to visit if you're around because you have all the big city amenities, but like in a smaller city. So you still get the small town vibe. There's a lot of like little bars and, and restaurants and stuff in their own little neighborhoods. Milwaukee's like got all these, oh my gosh, way too many named neighborhoods with their own little character to it, you know? So I like that vibe to it. It's, it's, it's a good place to uh, just try something new all the time and still get the small town feel even though you're in a city, you know? That's cool. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's a cool place. yeah, we have small areas like that up here in Cleveland. Like we have a, a small like Asian area. We call it uh, Cleveland's little, you know, uh, little China. And then we have um, we have uh, uh, of course, um, let's see, we have a nice Italian spot. That's actually not bad. Little Italy's not bad. That's mm-hmm. that one's that one's got some great restaurants. I always had the general so. opinion of perspective that Milwaukee seemed like Cleveland with fifty percent less suck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> I can't speak to that. <laughs> um, it sounds I, like it, though. <laughs> well, how, I mean, how strong was that beer, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> it is a great city, but it is one of the most segregated cities in America. Oh, wow. And uh, that's a major problem. And, okay. um, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. I mean, you, you can just be on one side of a highway and it all be – black poor areas and then on another side sort of white affluent areas and the way the districting works and redlining has worked over the years has been very um unjust and uh it's a problem that lingers in milwaukee Hmm. so uh having said that it's a it's a it's a great it's a great city there's a lot of great stuff about it i love i love it up here even though i'm a texan (laughs) through and through um I, I still love it, but you know it has serious problems too. So, mm-hmm. like every city, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Have the same problems. Is the, is, is the yeah. weather better up there than back down here in Texas? <laughs> uh, depends on when you ask that question. <laughs> if, if you're asking in summer, it is like paradise up here. I mean, oh. it's just gorgeous all the time. You know, you want to go out to the lake and the parks every day, and it's just wonderful. And Milwaukee's like festival city, man. They like no joke. When the sun comes out and it's warm, I mean, they have festivals every day in the summer. Oh, I mean, nice. Summerfest is a huge live music fest they have. Um, but then, the, I mean, they have German Fest, Irish Fest, you know, India Fest, every festival you can imagine, you know. Um, so th- those are fun. Those are fun too. Sweet. Actually, nice. sounds pretty similar. Yes, to it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the winter, <laughs> you don't want to be near this place <laughs> unless you're doing a phd and you're just inside studying all day yeah. um because it gets like crazy cold and this southern boy here has never lived this far north until i came up here to do a phd and it was like oh man you're probably, you're probably like what is this what's this white stuff on the ground oh, listen after it snows the first time it's great and beautiful and quiet and you know, just a beautiful sort of original, like, blanket of snow. And then after a few weeks, you're just like, okay, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm done with this. this. great sludge ever go away? Ever? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then you get used to it. You get used to it. It's, you know, I say it's bad, but, like, after the first year, you know, you get used to it. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Not too all right, so dis- we get into yeah. it? 
Is that not too dissimilar from Cleveland? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Where we're, we're anxiously uh, awaiting. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, um, so so what I'm going to talk about tonight is First uh, Corinthians 15, and uh, I've I've wrote on this passage a few times. Uh, only one of my pieces is in print right now on it. But uh, uh, I've presented papers on this at the Society of Biblical Literature. Um, this chapter, book chapter, that I'm going to be sort of talking about some points in that I think are really important, um, is published in a book called Scripture, Texts, and Tracings in 1 Corinthians. And it's edited by Linda Belleville and B.J. Oropesa. Uh, this is published by Fortress Academic back in last year, 2019. But the paper was given back in, I believe, 2015. It's been a while. I mean, it was probably four years ago when I actually gave the paper. But the the publishing process, you know, is very, very long and dragged out in academia uh, because, well, the good publishing process because it's peer review, you know, and the editors have to go through it. And in this particular case, this is a conference volume. So this is a collection of papers over like a six-year um, uh, conference group at, at the Society of Biblical Literature called, basically it's on intertextuality in 1 Corinthians. Um, I traditionally say 1 Corinthians like the Brits, so because this is not technically the first letter written to them, so we just slap one on it because it's the first one we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so what I, what I talked about um, on the Naked Bible podcast and in this chapter and and when I gave this paper is there's sort of a neglected background to 1 Corinthians 15 that a lot of scholars miss. And I think, I think the reason why is because everyone sees the conversation on, and what uh, actually what section I'm talking about tonight is 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 42. Um, and this is particularly the section discussing the nature of the resurrection body. And then that passage, that starts in verse 30, 35. But this passage in particular is a creature list that's used in that text to describe um, the nature of the resurrection body versus the nature of the um, terrestrial earthly body. So um, the background that I'm suggesting is neglected in this text is actually coming from what I call a Deuteronomic scriptural matrix. And what I mean by that is there is a, a string of texts in the book of Deuteronomy that are used frequently in early Judaism to describe the gods of the nations um, in particular. So uh, the gods that were uh, appointed to rule over nations by Yahweh, the Most High God, um, back during the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11. So if if any of you are familiar with uh, Mike Heiser's podcast, the Naked Bible podcast, or any of that content, You've heard of this divine council worldview he always talks about. Um, we don't really use that language in scholarship because everyone in biblical scholarship just sort of knows there's a divine council. <laughs> um, but there's debate about when did those ideas go away in Israel and when did, you know, how long did they sort of persist? You know, when did Israel become what we would now call monotheist, um, which is kind of an anachronistic term. So it's a term that is sort of derived from 17th century Neoplatonists at Cambridge that decided to describe ancient Israelite religion this way. Um, And this is coming from a a wonderful monograph by a scholar from uh, Cambridge and St. Andrews named Nathan MacDonald. He has a book on Deuteronomy and the meaning of monotheism that I think is very good on this topic. But um, so, so the issue is, there's these string of Deuteronomic passages that get used to describe these gods of the nations um, that were very real to them. And they were, so all the nations have their gods that they worship. So the term ethne in the New Testament, for example, that we translate as Gentiles or nations is the same term. And from a Jewish perspective, in the context of the Greco-Roman world in the first century, majority of Jews in that period, regardless of the sect you're in, all sort of agree that these powers are real and that the nation's gods are actual gods, little g, that they worship. 
So when they go to cult in a temple or, you know, wherever, they're actually, the meals that are consecrated to that deity, they're really there. The deity really is present. They really are worshiping that uh, and participating in what Jews in that period would call idolatry. Uh, some, the very conservative ones. <laughs> but then it's sort of the more, uh, what we might say, liberal, urbane, sophisticated, like Jews of the polis would be going there and celebrating all the time and see no problem with this, you know? Uh, there's even uh, passages in the Septuagint of, of uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the dominant Bible of the diaspora in this period. Um, those who don't live in the land, who don't live in Palestine, who never spoke Hebrew, don't know Hebrew, you know, they always heard in their synagogues the Greek scriptures being, you know, expounded from. Uh, so when the, there's passages in Exodus, for example, that take uh, the charge to not blaspheme Elohim, God, which would have been referred to Yahweh by the Elohist, referred to God as Elohim, um, the Septuagint will go and translate that as not to blaspheme the Theoi, the gods plural. <laughs> so this, this is interesting because um, this is a common text that's used that would be used to sort of say, um, don't be antisocial, basically, with the Greeks, you know? <laughs> so to blaspheme the gods would mean like, um, you know, those gods are illegitimate, you know, you're worshipers of idols, you can't go do that. Whereas other Jews who read those same texts in Exodus might read them in the Second Temple period as it's saying, well, we don't want to just, you know, blaspheme them and make them look terrible or undermine them. We, we can go celebrate with the pagans, too, and be friends with them and be neighbors with them. And so there were different views on the gods in this period. Um, but on the apocalyptic side of Judaism, it was expecting the coming Messiah, the end of the world, the judgment of the nations. Na the, na the, the national gods are bad. They need, or the angels. Sometimes they're called angels. Sometimes they're called gods, depending on what text you're reading. But Deuteronomy specifically is the gods. Uh, there are some. There are a couple of texts in Deuteronomy that call them angels, but the rest of the time they're just called gods. But the point is, the apocalypticist, and Paul is one of these. In this period, that believes that the national gods have led the Gentiles astray, and they're what sort of cause a lot of the problems of, say, the ethics of Gentiles and keep them in their blindness, keep them in idolatry, right? And so he looks forward to the, the principalities and powers, the rulers. He looks forward to their destruction. Hmm. So this, this is significant because there are other Jews that would totally disagree with him in the period. So a contemporary of his, for example, in Alexandria, one of the hubs of Second Temple Judaism in Egypt at the period, um, and... Philo of Alexandria, famous philosopher and sage uh, in the period, contemporary with Paul, would take the opposite view of Paul on this, where the, where the gods um, are gods, you know, that, that's what they are, but he has a different take on what the sort of destiny of these gods are. Um, now, one thing that they will agree on is they will polemicize pagans or Gentiles for the worship of these gods, as if they are sort of the cause of everything, the rulers of everything, whereas instead of acknowledging from their perspective the most high God, the creator of all, um, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So there's a, there's, a, there's a brilliant passage that talks about this in Philo's Special Laws 1, 13 through 19, and I'll read it to you, because he's using some of these same Deuteronomy passages that Paul will use in his letter to the Corinthians but you'll see a very different take on them. So their similarities are outstanding, but you need the similarities first to see what the differences are, you know, so you can see Paul in 3D kind of. <laughs> so let me give you Philo's take on this, on these Deuteronomy passages. So let me set up the context here of this text. This text that I'm about to read, the context here is Philo is critiquing why, uh, why he thinks from Scripture these Greeks are foolish for attributing all the fates to the astral host, to the celestial beings. So, because this, it's very common to, in, in Greek thought and Hellenistic thought, to think of um, getting in touch with the fates through sort of 
astral um, divinization and such. You know, like you want to figure out your fate and the fate of your polis or the fate of others. Um, so that's sort of what Philo's critiquing here. And let me read it to you. So he says, some have supposed that the sun and the moon and other stars were gods with absolute powers. And the term here is autocratoras. This is where we get the term autocrat or autocratic ruler. So they rule in and of themselves, like they're the ultimate authorities. So that this is what he's critiquing here. He's saying some actually say they're gods with absolute powers. So he says, and they ascribe to them the causation of all events. So he's like, some people say this. So these gods, which are the sun, moon, stars, right? So <laughs> which is crazy, you know, right? But this is what he this is what he says. So some say that they're autocratic rulers, basically, and they cause everything, right? So then he goes on to say, but Moses held that the cosmos, the cosmos, right, the world, what we translate as world, um, was created and is in the sense the greatest of commonwealths. So the term here is used for just any sort of Greek or uh, commonwealth to where you have, you know, a hierarchy of rulers that keeps the order of the, the polis, you know, keeps the order of the city, maintains justice, maintains the order of the city. So, so it is with um, the Hebrews who are saying the cosmos itself, the whole thing is like the greatest of commonwealths where you have a hierarchy of rulers, right? So he says, having rulers, and he uses the term archontas and excusia, this principalities and powers language, rulers and powers language that we find in Paul, same terms, okay? And so he says, this is how we understand this greatest of commonwealths, the cosmos. It has rulers, so principalities and rulers, all the celestial bodies. So all these sun, moon, stars for them are these rulers, these gods. He says they're either fixed or wandering. So this you'll find in Greek literature a lot when, when, with reference to the stars. Um, fixed, fixed stars versus wandering. Do you know the difference between these? The fixed stars versus the what? Wandering? Versus wandering stars. Wandering stars? <laughs> Man. Um, good question. Does that Zachariah really... Zachariah nodded his head like he knew. <laughs> What's it referring to, Zachariah? I'm guessing we're talking about like the difference between like the stars and the planets, right? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Yeah. I'm guessing we're talking about the difference between the uh, actual stars and planets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because right. The, the because the actual stars, yeah, that's right. That's right. They don't follow the same track as all the other stars, you know? So if you're, if you're looking up at the night sky, you know, presuming you can do that and not live in a city like most of us do and actually see these millions of stars, then what you would see, like the ancients saw, is that those bodies of stars always are rotating around the Earth, you know, from their perspective, right? So they're all moving. But then there's those one pesky ones that don't move with all the rest. You know? <laughs> like, here's all the rest of the body, and then you'll have one or two that are just sort of like here and here, and they're not going with the rest of them. So they would be called wandering stars, and these would be the planets, what, what we understand as the planets, you know, Venus and Neptune and Mercury and all that. So which are the name of, you know, Roman gods. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so this, this is literally the wandering stars. Now, it's funny because there are some uh, Jewish, way, Jewish stories, etiologies, like origin stories, about the wandering stars, and it's linked to um, Enochic traditions of fallen angels and fallen hosts that they don't keep the same sort of obedient pattern. You know, they don't obey God and follow their ranks. You know, they sort of like wander off and they're not doing their job kind of thing. So they're like bad, you know. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of funny stories about that in this period, which is really yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, um, we see that in like the scriptural text, that term, like in Jude, we see wandering stars. For whom yep. the gloom of utter darkness is reserved forever. That's right. Which yeah. is he's, he's drawing heavily on uh, the Enochian. Uh, yeah, he's literally. Yeah, he's literally quoting from Enoch in that passage. And yes. Enoch, when it tells the story of the fallen angels from Genesis six, um, when it tells the sort of allegory 
well, not the allegory, but sort of describes it in sort of poetic language. It says that they're falling stars, you know? Um, so this is, so anyone, anyone in sort of apocalyptically minded Judaism of the period, and even those who aren't, have probably heard these stories, okay? So they're very common. Um, we have lots of uh, manuscripts of these traditions. We pause right there. We do a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Gumby here from Bible Over Brews. Are you looking to get some editing done in your podcast? Maybe you don't have the hours or time it takes to edit your content, but you still need to get it done. Maybe you need a customized track or a song for your podcast or your next project without having to worry about copyright issues. Well, look no further than soulworkmusic.com, where this footwork is done for you. I'll get that editing post-production work done right for you or create you that customized song that fits your project or podcast to help support your life's work. If this sounds like what you need, reach out to me at soulworkmusic.com. Again, at soulworkmusic.com. And remember, there's nothing taboo over brew. So, so Philo goes on to describe these powers. He says uh, they're either fixed or wandering, and for subjects, so they're the rulers, so who are their subjects? He says for subjects, such beings as exist below the moon in the air or on the earth. So if you think of a three-tiered cosmos here, you have the celestial bodies up here, the gods who rule everything in the air and under. So reality would exist literally in a hierarchy because this is the way a polis is structured. You know, this is the way a city, a government is structured. You have the high rulers and then you have the lower beings that are ruled over. And the higher ones are always supposed to be like the wisest or the smartest. And often that's due to their own nature. You know, they're just sort of naturally, they have wise souls or righteous souls, you know. Um, Plato talks about this in The Republic, you know. He'll have Socrates saying, you know, uh, na it's natural for the, these wise and righteous to be at the heights and to get special treatment and all the education and to rule the city because they are naturally more wise and righteous than everyone else. And so they need <laughs> to rule the whole thing. So this is just sort of a common sort of political, structural view of the cosmos, you know, in a way. So the celestial bodies fit into this in their, in their mind, in their Jewish mind. It fits well in within the parameters of the Hellenistic world. So they're using scripture, but they're using it in a way that would make sense to it, just living in the Hellenistic world that thinks this way, you know, about the polis and the cosmos. So he goes on. He says, they rule all the beings uh, under the heavens and the air on the earth. The said rulers, however, in this view, have not unconditional powers, but are lieutenants of the one father of all. And it's by copying the example of his government, exercised according to justice and law. Paul talks about this a lot, justice and right, righteousness, dikaiosune or dikin, um, and law. So over all created beings, that they acquit themselves aright. So, but those who do not describe the charioteer mounted above and attribute the causation of the events in the cosmos to the team that draw the char chariot as though they were the sole agents. Mm. So he's sort of picking on him using the, the god of the chariot motif. So Greeks would get this, you know, Helios, the sun god, you know, rides his chariot through the clouds and he's the, you know, high warrior god. You don't mess with him. Why would you worship his little flunkies drawing the chariot and not give him props, right? So it's like, but this also comes from scripture, this idea of the God of the chariot, the chariot warrior God, Yahweh, who rides his chariot through the heavens in the Exodus and defeats the foes, you know, in the Exodus, he defeats the gods of Egypt and he makes a mockery of them in the plagues. And, and you have the Psalms and Exodus frequently um, understanding God's throne as his warrior chariot. He rides through the heavens and the angels sort of draw his chariot, you know. Uh, so, so Philo's using that imagery and saying, you Greeks, man, why are you worshiping the guys that are drawing the chariot and not the big guy who rides it? You know, it's like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you've messed up. So that's sort of where he's going with this. So, um, so he says from this ignorance, so he calls him ignorant, uh, for doing this, you know, attributing all the celestial bodies with all the fates, you know, he says, our most holy lawgiver, speaking of Moses, of course, would convert them to knowledge with these words. 
And what does he quote? He quotes from Deuteronomy 4.19. And the passage says, Do not, when thou seest the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the ordered host of heaven, go astray and worship them. So he does not say they don't exist. He says, don't go astray by going and worshiping them. Right. And so Philo continues and says, well, indeed, and aptly does he call the acceptance of the celestial bodies as gods going astray and wandering. And then further along, he says, and the other stars, in accordance with their sympathetic affinity to things on earth, acting and working in a thousand ways for the preservation of the all. So he sees that this is good. You know, they're always at work with us. They help us keep the seasons. You know, they help keeping everything going. You know, this is good. But he says, you've wandered infinitely far in supposing that they alone are gods. This is what he says. He does not critique it. So this is a first century Jew in the Greek world in Alexandria who's much more sympathetic probably to a lot of Gentile religion than Paul might be. Um, but he still is saying, look, you're, you're, you're silly if you think they alone are gods. So further he says, so all the gods, which since describes in heaven, so all the gods that we know are up there, basically, must not be supposed to possess absolute power. And there's that term again, autocrates. So they're not autocratic rulers. They are not the absolute rulers of all, right? So he says, no. He says, but, to, uh, but they have received the rank of subordinate rulers, naturally liable. Now, here's the kicker. He says they're naturally liable to correction, hmm. though, in virtue of their excellence, never destined to undergo it. Hmm. So he thinks they're pretty good. <laughs> wow. He's like, yeah, they, you know, they, they keep their orders. They keep everything well down here. And sure, they rule everything under the heavens, blah, blah, blah. But don't call them autocratic rulers. You know, don't think they run the ship. Go after the father of all. He's above them. He delegates their authority to them, you know. Don't attribute all the fates to them. Don't think they're autocratic rulers in and of themselves. They're gods nonetheless. He says the celestial bodies are deities, but, they, but don't go off and worship them. That's what he's saying. So Paul takes a very different view because when he... When he uses these same texts, he from Deuteronomy four that he echoes back in First Corinthians eight, um, when he when he's saying that um, about the Gentiles that they have other, many gods and many lords, which indeed there are many gods and many lords, but for us there's but one God and one Lord. So, um, yeah, Zechariah. Yeah, it seems like he's making kind of a similar critique to Philo in that he's saying, okay, there there are gods in the in the heavens and in the created world, but then he sort of abstracts uh, uh, God and uh, Lord there and says, okay, they're sort of outside this this structure, right? Which is kind of what it seems like Philo is doing. He's saying, you're, you're well, worshiping the visible uh, things, but yeah, ignoring so, the invisible God. Yes, I, you're right to draw the parallel to say that Philo and Paul both agree as all— <laughs> Almost all Jews would, generally speaking. I mean, there's always exceptions to this. But almost all Jews would say that, that are sort of like really serious about their scriptures and stuff would say that, yeah, our God is the highest God. You know, he's above all the gods, you know, and that no one compares, right? But there's, but so even amongst that camp, which says that, you still have differing views of like what will happen to those gods. You know, are those gods innately bad? You know? Or are they like Philo says, where they're like, you know, they're they're autocratic rulers. They're not autocratic rulers. You know, they're just the little lower tier guys. Don't worship them. But that even though he says they're liable to correction because they're not like the the perfect, like the source of all good, the father of all, he says because of their virtue, they are never destined to undergo it. They're never destined to undergo this correction. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting from these powers from Deuteronomy, these same texts that Paul references. Now, when he talks about the powers and principalities in 1 Corinthians 15, if you've read this text, you know he's not a fan of them. <laughs> he's, he's not the biggest fan of the principalities and powers, in where in verse 20 through 28, he'll, he'll address this and say that all the principalities, powers, and rulers, Jesus is destroying. <laughs> he is letting waste to them. Now, the, 
there are some scholars like Emma Wasserman who wrote a whole book on this that, that has said that, well, that term destroy, does it, it actually doesn't have to mean destroy. It could mean like um, chastise or chasten or something like that. So it could be just like set things in order in the political sphere of the heavens and just sort of, it's more about sort of um, political shimmying for power in the heavens kind of. Well, <laughs> what, I've, what I've written and spoke on with the death of the gods tradition is um, I think those types of views are wrong because Paul draws on the language of the destruction of the powers. Mm. It comes from Daniel and Psalm 82 and, and other places, Psalm 110, and that are used frequently in the more apocalyptic strands of Judaism to talk about the final judgment of the gods and their final death. Um, so if you're familiar with Psalm 82, um, then you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, if not, just go read it yourself. We don't have time to cover it right now. <laughs> but, so, so basically, you're getting two sort of views here of do these gods need to be destroyed? You know, because Philo's not an apocalypticist like Paul. He he's still a messianist. He believes in a messiah, but but he's not. He doesn't think there's going to be this apocalyptic denouement, this final turn of the world where where all the gods will be judged or the angels. Um, so this goes in line with what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, where he talks about the judgment of the cosmos and the judgment of the angels. And he, he's in that text, he's getting on to them for going to the public, the Roman magistrates, to work out their problems in the church. And he tells them, you, <laughs> he's like, don't do this. Don't you know that you're going to judge the whole cosmos? <laughs> so, like, why? You can't fix your own problems, you know? It's like, I, you think of, like, churches arguing over, like, carpet colors and, <laughs> and you know, parking spaces and junk. I mean, it's like, these people are not ready to rule the cosmos. <laughs> it's like, like, those are people you don't want ruling almost anything. So It's like walking in to um, yell at your kids, no, I yeah. told you to do the dishes tonight. <laughs> right. right. So Paul's like, why would you go to these pagan magistrates that worship these flunky second-tier beings when you're becoming like them and you're going to rule the whole shebang so much so that you're going to judge even their gods that they worship. So, like, if you think you're going to go up to the stratosphere there, like, you're crazy if you're going to the magistrates of pagans, you know? So th this is the type of logic that Paul uses, and it's based on his eschatology that comes out. Because a lot of people don't know what the heck to do with that First Corinthians 6 passage. They're like, what does he mean, judge angels? <laughs> well, um, th there's this, it's like, I didn't know we were supposed to judge angels. <laughs> you know? But um, the, the, what, that's part of a running narrative within apocalyptic strands of Judaism of the period, which say that these celestial bodies, who they understand to be gods or angels, uh, the, 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 high, the higher ones actually divvied up to the, as national deities. Um, and the term in Corinthians that's used to describe this is daimonia, which we translate as demons. Mm -hmm. um, but it only demons only appears a few times in the New Testament. People think it's everywhere, and it's not. It's only it's like you'll find it smattered throughout the Gospels, and there you need to know the background of like the Enochic spirits. Um, but in Paul here, he quote in First Corinthians uh, ten, he quotes from Deuteronomy thirty-two, um, where he uses the term daimonia. For like you, you people who are going and eating uh, with these foreign gods, you know, don't you know you're eating with daimonia, you know? So uh, th this is the term that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek of Deuteronomy, to translate the term shedim, which would be seen as like the underworld gods, kind of. But uh, Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses uses that language to describe the gods of the other nations that Israel went after in the wilderness when that. You know, when they sort of betrayed God after they had come through the waters, you know, and were delivered in the Exodus. And then they went after those gods of the other nations instead of God, and God's like sort of reproving them, you know. And so that's the text that Paul decides to quote from to the Corinthians to, set, to see their contemporary situation. So these ones that are in Christ, that have been baptized into the Christ in union with him, that they're going and worshiping these other gods still, or at least participating in these cultic festivals and, and meals and stuff. And, and he's saying, don't you know you're eating with demons? Like, don't <laughs> you? And he even likens this to 
he starts First Corinthians 10 with the whole, I say first, I'll bounce from like 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians, whatever. Um, so at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, if you know it well, then you know that he starts that whole passage by saying, hey, our fathers were baptized into Moses, you know, in the cloud and the fire. And they ate of the same pneumatic food or heavenly food, spiritual food. And they drank from the same spiritual drink of the rock that followed them, which was Christ, he says. Mm. So, so this idea is what they've done in their baptism into Christ is just like the fathers of old. So they've been welcomed into this family of Israel, of Israel's God, kinship with Israel uh, through the worship of Israel's God and leaving their gods behind, presumably. You know? um, so they go through the waters and they're delivered from those gods, you know? And so in Paul's mind, he has this sort of running narrative, it seems, that they in their baptism have been exodus out from all these other powers and principalities, and now they have one God and one Lord. For us, there is one God, he says. So this, this idea is they've been redeemed from them. Why are you going back and worshiping the daimonia? He's like, you're no different from the fathers. And he says, this was all written down for our instruction. We're supposed to learn from them. You know, mm -hmm. so he sees them as being judged now in this cosmic new exodus where the, all the principalities and powers will be judged, not just the gods of Egypt, but all of them. And so not just delivering the one nation from Egypt, but from the seed of Abraham now to all the nations, the father of all the nations, delivering all the nations out from under their gods. And so that's this is the epic sort of cosmic view of baptism as exodus for paul mm. so if you've gone through that baptism and you've tasted the heavenly food and the, and the the pneumatic food he says we translate as spiritual but this gets into where we're going in first Corinthians 15 is the idea of the pneumatic existence because paul compares um the nature of the our bodies down here to the nature of the gods the celestial bodies up there and says in the resurrection will be like them they're pneumatic pneumatic bodies versus terrestrial or fleshly or earthly bodies. And so, so he says, if you've gone through baptism and you've tasted this pneumatic food and drink already, it's as if you've already been purchased out from under those powers and you're looking forward to that resurrection where you're exalted and you're eating that heavenly food and drink now. It's just like the manna on the way to the, on the, way to the promised land, right? This is the thing that sustains them to getting there. Which is this is this is where the theology of the Eucharist comes from. I mean, this idea, the 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 manna in the wilderness, you know, the mm -hmm. the sort of eschatological apocalyptic manna in the wilderness. And that rock that followed them way back then was Christ. And it's just <laughs> so we're drinking of his blood and eating of his flesh now, and it's it's the same kind of thing that's happening now for them as happening in Exodus, but on a cosmic level. Let's so this is sort of the narrative, yeah, behind what Paul's doing. Um so how does this connect all into 1 Corinthians 15? That's the question. So where, is it, where, is, where am I going with this, right? So in this 1 Corinthians 15 passage in verse 39-42, traditionally people have said, okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, this is all about like uh, being made in the image of God. The, the, the last Adam comes in, so Christ is like Adam. Um, he's a new Adam, you know, where Adam failed and died, so Christ is a new Adam. And so it's a new creation, boom, we just go back to Genesis, right? And so Genesis is the source for this. So he goes to talk about the nature of the resurrection body, what's it going to be like, because people are doubting there is a resurrection body, because um, uh, why would you want that? Especially if you're a Platonist, like, why would you want that? The, the body's like a prison, you know? You want to escape that. It's like a weight holding down the the light sort of righteous soul that's mastered the virtues so that once you shed off this sort of prison house, literally, this is what Paul calls it, and Philo echoes him, Philo agrees, he's a Platonist the same, that he, reading Plato and using that in his interpretation allegory of scripture, he'll say things like, yeah, we, we want the soul to arise um, to heaven to the heights, and you must escape the prison house of the body. And he even talks about the assimilation to God, um, which is a technical phrase in, in Plato for the, the righteous soul ascending to heaven, blah, blah, blah. So Paul's saying that, no, there is a resurrection body. There's an actual body to this. 
Um, it's not the soul. And he even sort of critiques it where he'll use the term that nobody else uses anywhere that we can find except for him. He's very idiosyncratic here. He'll use the term soulish body. Um, uh, soma psychikon. And nobody uses that in Greek. Like People talk about the soul. They don't talk about a soulish body. They're like, what is that? You know, the soul is not a body. But for him, I, I think what I think is going on here is he's using the term like it's used in the Greek um, of Genesis, that where man becomes a living soul, psihi, it's the same term here that's used for soma uh, a soulish body. He uses the term differently than, say, Philo would, where Philo would say, when they read Genesis, when an Alexandrian or Platonist is reading Genesis, they'll say, oh, okay, so man becoming a living soul, that's the ultimate destiny of man, is his soul. That's like the ultimate part of him. There's even like, they split the creation story up in Philo, like there's the creation of the heavenly man, the, the soul, and the earthly man, like from the dust, from the ground, and that's like the not-so-good one, you know? <laughs> uh, so Paul's like, no, um, that translates the term nephesh, by the way, um, which is just sort of the, the term for like uh, what we translate as soul, but it just means a life, you know, because uh, like plants and animals can have nephesh too, you know? So it's like we don't think they have souls. So, <laughs> you know, so, so for some Hebrews, that just means their life, you know? He breathes life into them and they're living beings, you know? So for Paul, he's saying, okay, that breathed into life in Adam that was made from the dust, that's a soulish body, that one's going to perish. Hmm. And the, the, the body that the heavenly beings have, he says, is pneumatic. And I'll read the passage. He says, because he, he compares them. He compares the earthly ones and the, and the celestial ones. And this is in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 39-42. He says, not all flesh is the same flesh, but there is one for humans, another one flesh for animals, another flesh for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. So this celestial and terrestrial, literally. So the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the earthly of another. So there is one glory. So he, notice he's using glory versus flesh. Yeah. In flesh to talk about everything down here. And he uses glory, doxa, to talk about everything up there. The shining, brilliant, you know, eternal glory. So, or immortal at least. Um, so he, he says, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star and glory. Now, what the heck is he talking about here? Now, if you look up, you can just see, right? I mean, some stars are way brighter than others, right? Some stars look way bigger than other ones. Obviously, the moon is way bigger than all the other stars from their ancient cosmological perspective, you know? We know it's just, like, really, really close to us. <laughs> so, in comparison with stars that are millions of light years away. But for them, those are like little guys, but the moon is, like, way bigger, right? And then <laughs> even bigger than that, the sun. Like, you can't even look at that. Its glory is so great. So this is why, like, you would literally be hurt if you looked at it. So this is why, um, you know, stare at the sun for any length of time. You'll see. <laughs> I don't recommend doing that. But, <laughs> but this is why, in the ancient world, that's the highest god, right? I mean, oh, yeah. that's the, it sh that god shines the brightest. I mean, it's more glorious, literally, than all the other gods, you know? Lots more. All the other ones are like little fledglings. And then you have Shamesh, the big god. You, know? <laughs> you can't even look at his glory because you'll be blinded, right? So if you know this, if you know this, just in the physical world, this will make a lot of sense when you're reading ancient Near Eastern texts, including the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and the New Testament, when you can't look in the face of God, you know, it's too brilliant, his glory is too much for you, all that kind of stuff. Um, you would die, you know, if you look. So there's, there's, there's parallels within natural uh, thinking on theology in the ancient world, you know, the sun, God, traditions, and stuff that get amalgamated into how early ancient Israelites talk about their God. So anyways, that's a little background, but not really the point. So Paul, Paul's saying, they, they all differ from glory, right? So if you remember, how does Philo and Paul both, how do they deal with these Old Testament texts that talk about these celestial bodies, these gods? 
Well, like Philo said, the cosmos, just like Paul talks about, the cosmic order, that is made up of angels that apparently need judgment, <laughs> different than Philo, right? Um, for him, they're stratified. They're not all the same glory. They're not all the same level. They're, they're in a hierarchy as well. He even says here, you know, you know, sun first, then moon, then the stars, and even the stars themselves differ in glory. He goes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. So the resurrection of the dead has that same stratified sort of glory in the heavens where there's like a hierarchical reigning structure that rules everything down here, so too will it be in the resurrection. Hmm. This is where he goes with this. So now, now, if you're in the first century Greek world, this gets really interesting between like some intra-Jewish debate that happens because it's parallel with Greek debates over, so these gods up there, for the ones that believe in them, there's atheists in the ancient world too, by the way, um, but um, for the ones that believe in them, they will argue about, like, what's their nature? You know, Cicero writes an entire treatise on this, cataloging every, all, like, as far as we know, he's cataloged all the major sort of di disagreements and arguments with, like, Greeks and Romans' views on the nature of the gods. It's literally called De Naturum Deorum, on the nature of the gods. And, and they, they, he has an academic that, like, is from the Platonic school, and he has a Stoic. And he has an Epicurean that's like, gods, you dummies, you know. So he has them all three in a debate together, and they're arguing over the nature of the gods. And they go through and catalog, like, all the friggin' views. So if you're ever interested in reading, like, okay, what did the Hellenistic world think about the gods? Go read that, you'll know about everything there is to know. Um, I'm serious. I mean, it's free online. Just read the English translations. You know, oh, yeah. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And I, I stink in Latin, so I have to read it in translation, too. <laughs> um, so I, I ask my Latinist buddies if there's something, you know, I need to, you know, get real technical on. But um, but he talked, the, the Stoics, for example, will say to the Platonists, the ones that think it's all about the soul, right? They'll, they'll say, well, those Platonists, Plato is, and they literally quote Plato. He uh, Cicero has the Stoic guy quote Plato and say, Plato's wrong, when he says the gods are asomaton, that they're unbodied, he says Plato's wrong about that. And he and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says he says that we know that beings that have will and motion and all of this, we know they're bodied, you know. So when we look up and we see them, we know they have bodies as well, you know. They're just different. So some of the Stoics would say, guess what? The, well, guess what? Some of the Stoics say in this period that they're made out of. He says they're made out of pneuma. What we translate as spirit. Yep. This is the term used all the time in the New Testament, especially by Paul. And so there's scholars like Cholzinsberg Peterson and others who've written entire huge books trying to say, Paul's a Stoic, Paul's a Stoic, because he uses this language. But what's, what I think is happening here is you have, you have two different um, Jewish sort of perspectives. One that's more Alexandrian. And this is like in Corinth I'm talking about that Paul's addressing. One that's likely Alexandrian, a very platonic view like Philo, um, because, and the reason I think this, along with other scholars, this is not idiosyncratic view, other scholars hold this to this too, that um, Apollos, who's left over the Corinthian church to teach them, according to Acts, you know, and some scholars take Acts of varying degrees of historicity, or just use for history, but just for the sake of argument, um, even if even if it's not a literal history, I know I'm freaking out in Arantis right now, but it's okay. Um, but um, even if it's not like all literal, you can still say there's memory of these figures in Acts, which is even I think is even more interesting if it's not literal, because of all the things you could remember about Apollos, this is the only thing they tell us is that. So it could be a, a one-sided perspective because Acts is all about Paul. It's making Paul look like he's a god, like quite literally. Um, I mean, they literally mistake him and his buddy for Zeus and Hermes. I mean, you know, it's, not, it's not a coincidence, okay, that they think he, these are like semi-divine figures at this point. Um, they have the spirit of the high god, you know. So they even say that about Daniel. I mean, go read the book of Daniel. And what does yeah. Nebuchadnezzar and his dudes say about Daniel? He has the spirit of the high gods in him. Right. <laughs> so, so this is this is a very common thing in the ancient world for like prophets and 
people who are filled with divine spirits is they're acting like the gods, right? So all that to say, um, what Acts says about Apollos is that he's an Alexandrian and he's mighty in the scriptures and he's like using the scriptures to prove to people that Jesus is Messiah. So that's what Acts gives us about this guy. So we know from the early Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, we have that debate about people who are like, I'm with Apollos. And other people are like, I'm with Paul. And then others who Paul might be sarcastic or maybe he's telling the truth. I don't know. But he's like, I'm with Jesus. You know, it's like Trump card, boom. Um, so it's like, I'm with him. I'm with him. So you, you already have factions and divisions already. And this is like majority of the reason why he's writing to these people. Um, and the way Corinthians is structured is he's dealing with like each topic, you know, for each section of the, the letter. Like, okay, now addressing this, now addressing this. Like, you guys are super messed up, right? So, so, when he, so in 1 Corinthians 3, he's addressing this division between these people who say they're with Apollos, they say they're with Paul, and he's like, look, we're all builders, you know, we're all, I'm just the planner, you know, Paul's the water, it's God that's causing all the growth, okay? Stop defining. But what he, what he gets onto them about is, is the pneuma. He says that you're not acting pneumatic, He's like, you're still acting fleshly. He, he says, you're acting like mere men, he says. So what the heck is going on there? <laughs> Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.